Yeah, so we're still in Zechariah 9. We're going to go, we did like the first eight verses last time, so we'll finish out the chapter, and then we'll go from there. Turn out the lights on us too already. That's good. So uh, let's read it again just to recap. All right. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So that would be the Euphrates. Uh, now you know this, of course. Rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice greatly. Yeah, okay. I don't remember that. I don't remember how the music goes on the rest. Yeah, that's from uh, Messiah, right? So uh, we hear it. That's an Easter oratorio, but we always hear it at Christmas time, Advent time. And the text is actually Advent as well. What day is it? Is it for Advent one? Yeah. Yeah, pretty sure. And then does it come up again in Lent? I don't think so. So, yeah, the Palm Sunday procession is just the reading. Oh, no, the Sunday of the Passion at Zechariah 9 as well. Zechariah 9, 9 through 12. And then Advent 1 is actually Jeremiah 23. All right, so I've been speaking wrong the last two weeks. This is the Old Testament text for um, the Sunday uh, that we sometimes call Palm Sunday, but the Sunday of the Passion, right, the beginning of Holy Week. This is the text we hear attached to the Palm Procession, right? Um, so, it's full, obviously the lectionary uh, appointment there is indicating that we confess this is a fulfillment. And it's fairly obvious. Why? Because St. Matthew and St. John both quote it. <laughs> so, it's kind of hard to avoid. Uh, if you go to, is it Matthew 21, I believe? There it is. Um, and all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying... Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right? So you notice it's not the full, it's not the full text. It, it jumps in after the first, what did it leave out? What did Matthew leave out? You've got Zechariah in front of you. Rejoice greatly. Behold, your king is coming to you. Ah, no righteous and saving is he. Afflict, all right. And no Jerusalem. Yeah, so there's some omissions there. Um, but like I've told you, the evangelist doesn't have to quote the whole text. Sometimes the omission is intentional. Sometimes I think it's just say, oh yeah, you know the text, right? <laughs> Zechariah the prophet, as you hear in the synagogue. Okay. Um, and then it would be probably be John 12, right? Does that sound good? Uh, Mary anoint. There it is. So uh, the multitude comes out and says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus, when he found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. So John focuses, he leaves out all the stuff about righteous and saving as he, and he focuses entirely on, well, fear not, O daughter of Zion. That's a little bit different, actually. Fear not, right? He adds that. Okay, because it was rejoice and shout aloud. And then, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Right, so they both recognize that the prophecy in Zechariah 9, both according to Matthew and John, is fulfilled in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Good? All right. That's fairly easy stuff to do, right? We call that um, rectilinear 
prophecy, rectilinear, meaning there's a direct line between the Old Testament and the New Testament use. All right, there's other kinds of prophecy, but that, those are the easiest to demonstrate, right? It's like, well, the evangelist just quotes it and says, this is fulfilling what was said, what was happened there. All right, um, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. So two names for the holy city, right? And we've been talking about the restoration of the holy city. Zechariah has had in mind not only the rebuilding of the temple, but then the dwelling of God in that temple and with his people, right? But then we also noted that here, beginning in chapter uh, 9, especially 9 and 10, everything is looking forward to prophetic fulfillment as well, right, on the last day. Well, certainly with Jesus, too, uh, in Holy Week. So, yeah, these two, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. Daughter's interesting, isn't it? Because um, what is it about daughters? Daughters aren't inheritors, right? What does the daughter get? Yes, exactly. So daughters um, marry. So what? So you already have here in this language, you have the picture of Christ being the bridegroom and Jerusalem, Zion, the church being the bride, right? And so this is, behold, um, you know, the bridegroom or awakes. How does the hymn go? I had the hymn in my head for a second there, right? But the bridegroom comes, awake, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your, but it's not just Messiah, uh, but it's king, right? So that's very particular language. So as soon as he says king, of course, you're supposed to be thinking of, hmm, Jerusalem and king. Who's the king of Jerusalem? The king of Jerusalem. Riding a donkey into the city after victory or for victory. David, right? So this is the son of David. So we have that fulfillment, that prophetic idea here. And um, Zechariah, of course, is pulling from Isaiah. James, cut it out. He's pulling from Isaiah. He's pulling from Jeremiah. I think we'd mentioned this last week, right? Those older, the prophets from before the exile. Uh, your king is coming to you. Do you come to your king or does the king come to you? Yeah, the king comes to you. So think of today, right? Um, we are saved or justified by grace alone. Grace is gift language, right? God comes to you and saves you. You can't save yourself. Think law gospel from today's sermon, right? And here's Jesus doing that. He, so um, yes, it's fulfilled on Palm Sunday, but it's, it's fulfilled in Holy Week, right? The whole act of coming into the city, um, teaching, suffering, dying, and rising again on the third day. So it goes all the way through um, to his, to, from his entrance into his death and resurrection. Uh, this is why I've often thought it's just kind of bizarre. This is not true of you all, but it's it, the folks will like try to get to one Holy Week service. I'm like, you're kind of only getting a little part of the story. It's a whole thing. It's Holy Week and uh, very few people will attend, you know, the majority of those services, even though they're all unique and they're all, they're like parts of a whole. Um, it'd be kind of like, you know, the big thing with t television over the last 20 years or so has been to shift to serials. So each episode leads into the next. They're not standalone. You have to like, and if you miss an episode, you can't, and you try to jump in, uh, they've gone to serials because you can record shows more easily now. Used to be you couldn't like record them and go or go back and stream them and watch them again. So you can do serials. 
Uh, it used to be the shows that were serials, people would, it was like creating demand because it's like everybody, well, this was true with radio too, though. You had to sit down at the radio on Sunday at five or seven or whatever it was when whatever your favorite serial show was on because you wanted to miss the latest adventure of who? Yeah, whoever it is. Right. Or Dallas, the TV show? That was that. Oh, okay. So this is true with Holy Week. So he's coming in as a king having, with righteousness and having salvation. And that, that is referring not just to just riding in on a donkey on Palm Sunday, but referring to the acts of the entire week. Okay? I think that makes sense. Um, some people get hung up on this. I had somebody in my first parish that really thought it was bizarre. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he's like, well, is he riding on a, a donkey or on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Which is it? And he was like, he's riding on two animals. I'm like, it, it works this way. It's like, he's riding on lowly and riding on a donkey like David. Oh, why, oh by the way, specifically, a colt, a foal of a donkey, right? And then sometimes you'll see this pictured in classic art where they're, he's riding on the, the foal, right? On the colt. Yeah. yeah, he's riding on the colt and then leading the colt is the mother donkey. So there's two donkeys. He's riding on the little one. And then there's the, usually the mother and the colt is following the mother. Yeah, just to kind of illustrate this text. It's not like they, this guy, I, he was a... He was a journalist that was giving me a hard time because he's like, it sounds like he's riding on two animals. I'm like, yeah. Anyway, I didn't have a good answer then. I do now. So there you go. Yeah, specifically what kind of donkey, which is a little bit different than David because I don't think it's indicated that David that it was a colt. Yeah, so there's a degree then of difference, right? David and then Jesus is even more lowly, more humble than David in a way. All right, I... I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for what? This is one of the sons of Joseph. It's usually used as kind of an uh, indication of, of Egypt, actually, because this was a son of Joseph from his Egyptian wife. All right. So Ephraim, so chariot of Ephraim, you're thinking, when were there chariots with Egypt? Children, when was there a story with chariots in Egypt? Can I answer? Yeah, Leah, you can answer. You've been gone for a while. When Speak up so everybody can hear you. When Pharaoh and his army came after the yeah, so Pharaoh and his, his host came after, um, after the Hebrews, and then God drowned him in the Red Sea, and, along with all the chariots and the horses. Right, horses are not native to Jerusalem. Um, I don't know a lot about horses, but I know at least this much: is that neither Egypt nor Israel would have horses. Horses came from Arabia, and they would be imported. Um, they had these other these beasts of burden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, military use, and they would have to be imported. Right? They didn't bre- they didn't breed them. That's good. So, so here you have, you have the king coming, having salvation, meaning he's already defeat, he is, is or already defeating the enemies, right? As indicated by the chariot from Egypt or Ephraim, the son of Egypt. Um, Jerusalem, 
are from Jerusalem, the horse, the battle bow, right? So that's like a compound bow or something, I guess, right? Um, and then notice what he comes bringing. So that's all, the warfare is ended. So he can, he shall speak peace. But what's interesting is peace to who? To Jerusalem, to Zion? Or peace to the, to the nations? Yeah, we've talked about, you know, it's one of the most frustrating things about listening to the interaction of the Pharisees and scribes, the Jews, with Jesus. Because you're like, how do you guys not know that Jesus came for Gentiles? Weren't you listening, you know, in, in uh, synagogue school? Were you paying attention to the rabbis? Because it's right there. You'll speak peace to the nations. Not, and as indica- in case you didn't understand what that meant, the ethne, his dominion, his kingdom, his rulership as king is from sea to sea. So from, where's that? From where to where? Sea to shining sea, as we sing, right? Which refers to Pacific and Atlantic, right? Yeah, for real. I don't know. Sea to sea. What's the other sea? Any idea? I forgot to look this up. Could be. I like that idea. All right. Um, by the way, this is a coronation kind of ride. He is becoming king. This is the picture of it, but we said that. Um, C to C. Uh, peace, stability. I got that. Yeah. Yeah. He just avoided this commentary. Who's at uh, Concordia St. Paul? Theology professor there. Uh, nope. Says nothing about it. Just another way of confessing nations, I guess. Uh, from the river, that's the, I think it's north to south, east to west is what's going on, cardinal direction. From river to the ends of the earth. All right. What are the ends of the earth? Where does the earth end? Space. We have no flat earthers in here? No. Okay. If it's a globe, does it ever end? This, this would be the known, I mean, simply put, it's the known limits of civilization. You know, so from Spain to China, that kind of thing. You know, no new world yet. Uh, maybe, you know, into, into Africa and then up into Asia Minor. That, that's what's meant by ends of the earth. But he's speaking peace. How? Having defeated, having salvation, being righteous, having defeated um, the prototypical enemies of Zion and Jerusalem, which is Egypt and the other nations. Pretty straightforward? Got it? Okay. Let's keep going. So there's a response of his people, right? As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. That's a reference. We'll talk about that. For I have bent Judah, my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Macedonia, Alexander the Great, who conquered probably about, what, 200 years after this? 350 B.C., somewhere in there he came through. So Zechariah is prophetically looking forward to the conquest by the Greeks who then are conquered by the Romans. 
And this all happens after the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Wouldn't it be great if your country just kept changing hands every few hundred years? Anyway. That's actually what happens in the history of the world. We're just kind of, we're too young to realize that, hey, it's been about 250 years. It's time for a conquest. Nobody wants a Spanish Inquisition. Okay, and, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. All right, so let's look at this. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant. All right, whose covenant? Who made, what's the blood of the covenant? This is the language from... Uh, Jeremiah, but I think it's referring to the, the, yeah, I think we're still, we're still thinking Egypt. So the blood of the covenant was, it could have been the blood of the Passover lamb. God promised that he would not destroy the firstborn. Um, But there's other times there's blood shed um, with the law given, right? Uh, The law given to Abraham with circumcision, blood shed. It could, but the law given to Moses, you have all the sacrificial, you know, appointments, right? Blood is shed as a promise, or as an indication of the promise. Well, this looks forward to, uh, like this, this, right, this blood is the New Testament in my blood, New Testament, right? Replacing the Old Testament, the old, it's the same promise, but the Old Covenant has been superseded by the New Covenant. That isn't to say the Old Covenant was wrong, because the, sacrifi- the sacrifices of animals, the blood of bulls and goats, could not pay for sins eternally, but it's there as a, as a placeholder pointing forward to the promise made to Adam, made to Abraham, made to Isaac and Jacob, made to David, right? And then fulfilled in Jesus. Got it so far? Because of the blood of your covenant, of the covenant, is it which? Ooh, just look at the Hebrew here. Because of the blood of... Your co- is that what your translation says? Uh, Who? Yeah, that's what I was going to say too. Well, you could translate it either way, I guess. Depends on, uh, it's just the gram- grammar of it. I will set your prisoners, they're prisoners, so we're, again, we're talking Egypt, slavery, bondage, right? Prisoners free from the waterless pit. Who's that remind you of? Waterless pit. Being set free. What? Yeah, Joseph again, right? Remember, Joseph was thrown into the pit. Also, of course, then now, this is an indication of life outside of baptism, right? It's to be um, in, the, in waterless places or water, in a waterless pit. is to be without, without salvation, without baptism. And also life, right? Because water is necessary for life. Return to the stronghold. All right, so remember, we've, we've talked about this back in chapters 1 through 8, but... The walls of Tyre. Actually, we talked about this in chapter, yeah, the beginning of chapter 9. Remember, we talked about Tyre and its very thick city walls, but Tyre was destroyed, right? But God is describing his dwelling place as having walls that cannot be torn down, unlike Jericho, unlike Tyre, etc., right? All these walls that humans built, they're easily demolished. Even Jerusalem itself will be destroyed. But a mighty fortress is our God, as we sing. Patrick and James. Okay, thank you. Um, you prisoners of hope. So that's an interesting expression, don't you think? Because like, wait a minute. If you're a prisoner, how can you have hope? Well, what is hope if you are already saved? Do you need hope, even faith, if you already have salvation? 
No. Uh, unless you have it by faith and not by sight, right? So that's the same idea here. You are a prisoner, but you're, not a, pris- you're a prisoner bound um, to the hope of the covenant, right? The promise. So um, think of like Paul. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I count it all but loss, um, you know, to have that taken from me. So it's like, well, how can you rejoice in sufferings? Well, it's because you're, you're suffering with hope that you know that Christ will set you free. And if this is what he has set before you today, um, so be it. God will uh, work, work the best for that, with that. Uh, and then notice, there, here's the promise of the hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. All right, that's a quote from Isaiah 61. Remember I told you he's drawing from Isaiah. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Tell me more about double. What does that remind you of? Does somebody receive double for what they had received? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who gets a double portion of the inheritance? The firstborn. Very good. You don't have to let my children answer all the questions. Maybe you need to let other people answer the questions. Yeah, that's right. Um, is there another time when someone received double for their loss? Hmm. Oldest book in the Bible, probably. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, the book of Job. Remember what happened with Job? Everything was taken from him. God permitted the devil to take everything from Job. Um, Job remained faithful. And in the end, God restored to him double, even his children. Now, 10 were already in the resurrection, but he was given 10 more. So it's that prototypical story of, yes, there is suffering for a time, um, but in the end, God will restore. Um, of course, whether or not in this life, certainly in the life to come, right? Uh, Jesus talks about this. You say, you know, forsaking father and mother, son, daughter, you know, forsaking anything for the sake of Christ, it will be restored to you in the resurrection. Meaning, the family you have now is nothing compared to the family you will have in the resurrection. Okay. Oh, because it'd be one family in Christ, I suppose, right? Uh, anything else with that? Notice it's, it's return. Uh, we've talked about that word return before. What would be a synonym for return? If we're talking about returning to the Lord. Ethan's jumping in again, not giving people a chance to answer. That's right. Repenting. Repenting is to return to the Lord. Right? So that's what's happening here too. Um, think about it. That double portion comes back with forgiveness, doesn't it? Right? I'm trying to think of what the quote is. It's a, is it a psalm that talks about I will restore to you double? I'd have to look it up. But there's, is, there, is there more wrath against sin or more forgiveness? <laughs> right? The cup overflows when it comes to wrath. We heard that today in the Old Testament reading. The sins of the father are visited upon the, the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and do not keep my commandments, right? But gospel, forgiveness, showing love to, steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments, which comes by way of his forgiveness, right? So, yes, the wrath is but for a moment, but salvation is for eternity. I'm thinking, but wrath is but for a moment. Now I'm getting close to the quote I was looking for. Yeah, I'd have to Google it. All right, good. Uh, let's see, anything else on that? I don't know. Oh, Dorothy. You mentioned uh, uh, in 
Speak up. Yeah, I did mention that. Yeah, the stronghold is the Lord himself. That's exactly right. So when he says return, um, it is that repentance, returning to the Lord, for he is steadfast and kind, showing mercy, right? Blood of the covenant, Hebrews 9, verses what? 9, verse 12. 9, verse 12. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. That has that language in it, too. All right, good. Moving along. For I have bent Judah, my bow. So he's going to make Judah the bow. But then he fits the bow with Ephraim. So Ephraim, then, is the? The arrow. I think the arrow. Yeah, I think the arrow. Um, so notice... Well, we got, we'll keep reading. I raised and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. So he's made the sons of Zion like a mighty man, the sword of a mighty man, all against Greece, which will come. Um, you know, in, in actual history, God uses the nations to bring about repentance and forgiveness of sins for the people, to restore them to faithfulness. This is a... This is a hard lesson for us to learn because you don't really learn it in the moment. You learn it after the fact. You can look back on, say, on something, on an event, and say, oh, I see why the Lord allowed this event to happen. Right? There's a few people who are given the voice of prophecy ahead of time and warn you, but you won't listen. After the fact, you can look back and say, oh, I see why he allowed us to be overthrown. It's because we were no longer faithful to him. Right? And the, that overthrowing isn't simply a spiritual overthrown. It's often physical. It's the things we put our trust in. So it can be our government, it could be our wealth, it could be even our own very own life is put at risk. And through that, the Lord calls us to repent. So some of my favorite pictures of the life of the Christian is actually illustrated by um, people attending divine service in, the, in wartime. So, you know, celebrating the Lord's Supper in the midst of a bombed out church in Berlin, for example, that's a famous one, or Nuremberg or somewhere. Um, there's also pictures of chaplains, you know, in World War I by the, in the trenches conducting service with, with the soldiers piously kneeling in the trench, you know. I'm like, well, that's exactly right. You know, all hell is, is falling upon you, around you, but where's your hope, where's your strength, but with, with Christ and his word. Right, but he uses even all of this warfare, right, to bring to bring people back to Zion, back to, to the Lord. Um, and of course we've had this. One of the, the, the parts that you probably miss is that when they do the conquest of, of the promised land, that is the land of Canaan, who leads the armies? Who's the commander of the Lord's armies? It's God himself, that's right. Right, right. The commander of the Lord's armies is Jesus. And he, he goes out in front, he defeats the enemies, and then Joshua and the people follow him into the land and, and inherit it. So that's why that's, it was such an act of rebellious unbelief to say to Moses, you know what, we can't go in there, there's too many people. Because in the end, Joshua and Caleb, right, who are the two spies that believed, they're the ones who go in, Joshua leading the people. The people just walk in behind Jesus having defeated the enemies. I can't even, I can't even, like, it's hard to even picture what that looks like, right? Because it's not described in great detail, but that's what it says. Would you say that Jesus is, uh, 
Yeah, trailblazer. That's right. Yeah, he's like that. I don't know if you've seen the, the fancy thing that they have, especially like in the Pacific Northwest, these big like, I don't even know what you want to call them, these machines that just like knock down the trees and grind them in their path and just keep going. And they, you know, and they could just, like nothing stands in their way and there's just carnage behind them. It's like that. These almost like a war machine, right? Um, by the way, if Judah is the bow and Ephraim is the arrow or the string, I like that too, Leah. That's not bad, right? But bow and arrow, I think is right. Then they're being used together, which means they are joined together. We've already had that language of all nations, right? But God joins together people of every tribe, language, nation, um, what else? Color, I guess. I don't know, whatever. Ethnicity. He joins them all together to fight against who? Here it's, it's epitomized by Greece, but Greece is just a placeholder for whoever opposes God and his word. Right? So once enemies are brought together because they have a common foe in, with, in Christ. Yes, right. His word, etc. Yeah. Remember, back at the beginning of the book, what did, they, what did we keep calling the oracles? They kept coming from Yahweh Sabaoth, remember? Lord of the armies, or Lord of the, the, the angel host, or the, the army host. So that, that language of warrior uh, has been throughout. And now he fights to protect Jerusalem, right? Oh, we have, well, we haven't even gotten to that so much. 14, let's see here. Then the Lord will be seen over them. So just like with, with Joshua and the people of Israel, or he, the Hebrews going into Canaan. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. What is it about goes, the lightning will go from the east to the west? Jesus talks about that during Holy Week. Oh, yeah. I don't remember. You'll have to find that. And the Lord God will blow the trumpet. St. John picks up on that in Revelation. And go with the whirlwinds from the south. Right? So notice what else is God using for this defeat of, of his enemies, of our enemies. Not just the nations, but also the world, creation itself. Right? Because we've got um, lightning. We've got the sound of the trumpet. Or that's the, the trumpet, by the way, is just a, it's the shofar. It's the ram's horn. Right? Which comes from nature as well. From a ram. Yeah, and then the whirlwinds from the south. Uh, did you find it, Ethan? The lightning. Ooh, Psalm one eighteen. It's Psalm eighteen. Well, that's kind of like it. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Nice. What else could it be? Habakkuk three. The sun and moon stand still in their habitation at the light of your arrows. They went at the light shining of your glittering spear. Well, I don't know the context of that. Maybe we read Habakkuk next. That'd be fun. Just because we get to learn how to say Habakkuk. 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 Lots of practice, right? The Lord of hosts will defend them. Verse 15. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. Oh, there's another David reference, isn't it? Right? They shall drink and roar as if, as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. So again... Zion, the sacrifices. But now who's the sacrifice? 
the enemies of God are, are, are slain like the sacrifices were, right? That's how God feels about, about uh, his enemies and yours, right? Uh, by the way, where are we in this? What are we doing? Uh, we're in prison, and we're being set free. That's it. <laughs> Who's doing all of this? I mean, I guess you could be part of these nations. No, it's the Lord, right? The Lord God will do it, will blow his trumpet. By the way, I said that was Revelation, right? Uh, it's also St. Paul in First Thessalonians, I think, or maybe First Corinthians, right? He'll blow with the sound of a trumpet with the, or with the mighty trumpet of God and call the dead from their graves. I always read it at funerals. I haven't had a funeral in a while, thanks be to God, but I'm sure I will again. It's kind of unavoidable. Yeah, with the, with the cry of a trumpet. So it's in the Psalms too. Uh, the Lord of hosts. There it is. The Lord God of Sabaoth will defend them. That's an interesting word. Is that right? Defend? I suppose that works. I should mark my page here. Compare it to the Hebrew. And, uh, ooh, I went too far. I went back to chapter 9. Sorry. My pages are kind of sticking together today. Why is that? They're so wet. They're like, so my papers are soft. Um, Yahweh will appear above them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The sovereign Lord Yahweh will bore the horn. He will march in the storms of the south. Yahweh of armies will shield them. Oh, okay, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, to shield them. And he will, sh and he will devour and subdue with sling stones. Um, we think the sling stones with David is like, oh, it's you know five smooth stones from the riverbed. Oh, how weak is David and how strong is Goliath? It's not exactly what's going on with that story. Um, because David had already slain a lion with his sling. I mean, it's a pretty effective weapon, at least to knock out your victim and then, or your... Who you're, Yeah, he slings the stone, right, whether it's a sling. No, they had slings. We have, archaeologically, we have these things. They had very small ones, personal, but they had large ones too. We've seen these in like movies or whatever, right, where they have their like catapult. Where they, yeah, no, that's how they attack cities. They use boulders. They use small stones, large stones. Personal, yeah. It's, pretty, it's a pretty effective weapon, actually. It's a little less efficient, I suppose. It's kind of like a missile without a guidance system, Right. Just kind of project them and hope that they hit somebody on the progress. But arrows are the same way. Unless you're one-on-one -on -one with an arrow, a lot of times they just shoot like a whole volley of arrows, right? And just hit whatever they hit. It seems kind of inefficient, but so it is. Right. So um, the Lord using sling stones, it's, I don't think it's indicating like some kind of weakness or something like that. It's like, no, he's using the weapons of war here. Um, and they shall drink and roar as if with wine, which is not a positive thing. It's like, it's like the voice of madness, right? Yeah, when you're drunk with wine, are you, are you in your right mind? Raging sports fans, Ethan says. Is that right? Um, think about like with Gideon, right? Where they're surrounded... They surround the, the enemies and then they just make a bunch of noise and it throws them into chaos. So I think maybe that's what's going on there. 
Uh, and then the blood we already talked about. The blood of the enemies. All right. And uh, one more verse, right? Or two more verses? Yeah. The Lord God, their God, will save them in that day. Okay, so who saves? <laughs> the Lord their God. It's again, why would you as a Pharisee, thinking of today's text, why would you end up in a position where you thought you could save yourself without a Messiah? Well, it's not to say they didn't want a Messiah. They looked forward to a Messiah, but the Messiah had this little box that they had put him in, which is that he was going to save them from the Romans. Right? We know this. I know it's all kind of like... It's old hat, I guess, for us now at this point. Yeah, oh, we've heard this our whole life, right? That, you know, the Pharisees are kind of silly. But like, why would you get to the point... If you knew the scriptures, and this is the key, if you knew the scriptures, you believe them, you would not be led to the idea that we can save ourselves from our sins. There, there's no, or even that our righteousness is worth anything. There's no indication of that as you read through the prophets, as you read through um, the histories of Israel, as you read through the wisdom literature, you read through the Psalms. It doesn't happen. It doesn't say that like, your righteousness, you know, if you try hard enough, you'll succeed and then God will love you. It's not scriptural at all. So I think the answer there is that the Pharisees and the scribes, even with a nod towards the scriptures, even knowing the scriptures, they, they simply don't believe it. And then there's also a flip side to this, is that um, we have to be careful um, that we are not deceived in the same way. So I mentioned this in the sermon. It was just a throwaway phrase towards the middle. Um, because it was in the moment. I didn't actually intend to say anything. But where it said, you know, I can do all things through, through God who strengthens me or something. Is that what, it's, is that what I quoted from Romans? Yeah. Romans 8? Yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Have you ever seen this at like Hobby Lobby? You can buy it on a sign. You can put it in your kitchen, right? So that you can make all, you can make all dinner preparations with, through the Lord who strengthens you. Sometimes. Yeah, I can do all things through him. Well, how'd you end up teaching Sunday school again? <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I was going to say, people use that verse entirely out of context. This is how it happens. This is why I brought it up. Out of context to demonstrate that, well, if you want to be the next Usain Bolt, you can do it. You just have to work hard and the Lord will strengthen you and he'll make it so you can do it. You can have the, what does he have the world record? For? He had the world record in the 100 meter, the 50 meter. I don't remember. Probably 200 meter. I think he got 200 meter in the last Olympics. All right. One, are you built like Usain Bolt? No. You know, some of that's genetic. You're just, you know, naturally gifted. He was naturally gifted. You don't win with a world record and look at the guy behind you as you're running across the finish line. I mean... You shouldn't ever do that. It's kind of, it's not very humble, but he did it. Um, no, it, so again, this text, I can do all things through the Lord who strengthens me. So what the Pharisees and scribes do is the same kind of thing that um, we as Lutherans experienced at the time of the Reformation. So when uh, we, would, we confessed before the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, here's, here's what we as the princes who represent the churches of our territories, here's what we believe, teach, and confess in our churches. Augsburg Confession, 1530, right? And then Rome came back. Uh, I think it was Cajetan who wrote the response. He was kind of the cardinal for doctrine under the Pope. 
uh, wrote his response. It's called the, the confutation, where they confute, you know, they're, they're refuting is how we would say it today, not confute. But anyway, they refute, and, you're, and they quote scripture after scripture after scripture that have nothing to do with what we're talking about often. But they're like, well, this proves our point. And like, that doesn't have anything. They have, the Roman church at the time of the Reformation had no ability to read the Bible. They just didn't. There are people within the Roman church who can. Um, I think actually Erasmus is a good example of somebody who's on the, actually led the Roman church in a much better direction, even though he had the wrong conclusions. But he, he was very much about, ad fontes, go back to the original, read the Bible, read the context, look at what do these words mean, analyze the grammar, all the things that Lutherans did. But as a whole, the Roman church at the time of the Reformation, they just had a list of scriptures that they said proved their point that often had nothing to do with anything. So they read the Bible, but they didn't really read it as, um, for example, all confessing Christ. So they'll often quote something that explicitly or implicitly leads to faith in Christ as something not to have to do with Christ at all. So as much as we might complain about the Pharisees and scribes, um, how can they get, come to such a conclusion? One, it's the natural religion of our heart that they believe. So we all believe that same religion that, you know, this is why we have Santa Claus at Christmas time. Like, if we do right, we'll get gifts. We give everybody gifts anyway. We don't even care. But you got to be good, but we don't even care. Because we're still going to give you a present. I... Yeah, that's the religion of our heart. That's what we want to believe. And so then they're able to just modify, merge, conflate, you know, adjust God's word to match what they think God, what God would have them believe. Not what he's actually said, but what they would have them believe. So again... You know, if I were Jesus, I'm not, but, you know, this is what Jesus does often. He'll just say, Don't, have you not read Zechariah 9, verse 15 or 16? The Lord God will save them in that day. And he's talking about what? Save, save you from what? For what? Right? And then they'll be like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, all right, let's talk about it. As the flock of his people, that's another David reference, or Moses, or Abraham, Right? All the shepherds. Well, we have other shepherds? Yeah, there's others. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown. Ooh, that's nice. Lifted like a banner over his land. The people that God saves. I'm trying to think. Is that quoted somewhere? Maybe in a hymn. Fair jewels of his... Something about jewels in the crown. We've sung something like that. I should bring my... I actually have a... uh, uh, a concordance of the hymnal. Yeah, so you can look up a word and it tells you all the time that word's used. So I should have bring it. I mean, obviously you're thinking like crown him with many crowns, but that's different. That's from Revelation. Fair jewels of, fair jewel of the crown. Yeah. So God thinks of you that way. He adorns himself with you as a beautiful garment or as a crown. Lifted like a banner over his land for how great is its, what's its? What, what is it? What are we talking about? It's goodness. The crown? or Well, here it says his goodness. What do you think? Oh, great. Or Zion's goodness. Or Jerusalem's goodness. What is it? Or his? It could be the day... It could be the flock. It could be the jewels of his crown. It could be the banner of his land, which are all kind of synonymous, right? 
and how great is its or his beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. Huh. So in the same text, we had the blood of the covenant, and we also have grain and wine. Hmm. Hmm. Seem coincidental to you? Kind of. Not really. No. I kind of, uh, don't take this the wrong way. This is, is meant to be a compliment. But I was, when I, when I first came here and I asked about like communion practice and it wasn't every Sunday and I knew it would take a little work to get there, but with some encouragement, I think, you know, in God's word, particular people would come along. But I looked around in the sanctuary and you're surrounded by, by the icon. There's wheat and grapes all around you, which tell you what the room is for anyway. It's right there on the walls, all around you. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, grain and wine, new wine. New wine for the young women and grain for the young men to thrive. Louder, louder, louder. Okay, I like it. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. It is. <laughs> well, I mean, here, young men and young women, young at heart. <laughs> I'll say that, young at heart. No, we're we're all made we're all made children in Christ, right? Yeah. That's why that question about about the resurrection and like how old will I be is always kind of funny. I mean, it's like you'll be, you, well, yeah, and what is eternity? Young and old? Not even a category to describe the timeless. Yeah. Mature, I think mature would be a good word. Yeah, mature would be a good word. Right? That's not really an age either, no. Because you can be quite old and be quite immature, as I experience all the time. And different aspects, right? Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Um, and these, this warrior theme is going to come up in chapter 10, but we'll hold off on that. Did we miss anything on the quiz? Or on the quiz, the sheet. Prisoners of hope. Hope for believers in the one true God is expectation of something promised yet not seen. We said that. Against your sons, O Greece. Yes, in the following years through the Maccabees, the Jews won some victories over the Greeks. This may have been the near fulfillment of the prophecy. However, as with many Old Testament prophecies, the near fulfillment was always set against the backdrop of the final victory over sin and evil by the Messiah Jesus, right? So Greece is a kind of a placeholder for the, whatever nation is at, at opposed to God, right? Uh, let's see. We talked about the donkey, humility, king, exile. Yes, would be a comfort, hope. All right, I think we covered it. The coming king would destroy his enemies and deliver his people. Isn't that lovely? So again, when you hear this on, um, I've said this before, but it's worth bringing up. When you hear just that little bit from chapter, from verse nine of chapter nine, on, on uh, think of, maybe go back and think of this whole section and like, oh, what, what was going on there? It's about the Lord saving his people and, and bringing nations together from the ends of the earth. Right? And isn't that what Jesus is doing? Um, not just on Holy Week, but actually finally fulfilled Pentecost, right? Where there's people from all nations, languages, tribes. And then, of course, that's the minor fulfillment to the major, which is 
the resurrection, right? And the feast of victory. This is the full meaning and fulfillment of Jesus' name, to repeat what Ethan said very mumbly, because you couldn't hear it. It's just the fan, so loud. I'll make sure you can hear that. The Lord saves. The Lord saves. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's what his name means. It's kind of weird to think that there would be some other way. <laughs> that's what his name means. All right, so again, we're going to come to chapter 10 next time, which is more restoration and more, more violence, which is always fun, more sheep, more creation at play. All right. So, you've all been very patient. Let's, uh, let's close with prayer. I think it's time. Do you have to work today? Oh, nice. Take a nap. From vacation. Okay. All right, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, and uh, your Son, who is our victor king, we thank you for that victory that you have given us uh, through Jesus' suffering and death, and we ask that you would uh, lead us uh, into the stronghold as prisoners of hope, looking forward to the resurrection and our eternal life uh, with you and your Son. Give this uh, to us for the sake of your Son and by your Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.